Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. Thank you for listening and telling a friend. Your support means so much. This episode is a doozy. I read maybe a paragraph on this case and I was hooked. I had to know why. Also, why? Turns out there are a lot of reasons. This is a true crime podcast. It contains explicit details of murder and other types of assault. It is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It was August 2010, somewhere around 15 miles or so southwest of central London. Sally Challen had just left Claygate, Surrey, a suburban village. In November of 2009, eight months earlier, Sally had finally taken steps for her independence, including buying a small home in Claygate with money from an inheritance. Now she was in the process of reconciling with her husband of 31 years. It was a rainy Saturday when she returned to the family home on 1 Ruxley Ridge to begin clearing out the house so that she and her previously estranged husband could put it up for sale. The home was estimated to be worth one million pounds. That is around one million three in U.S. dollars. They were planning to take an extended trip to Australia with some of the proceeds. Before they got down to work, Richard told Sally he wanted bacon and eggs for breakfast. She had to go out to the store to get the makings for them. She felt that there might be a reason why he wanted her gone for a while to the store, and she checked his phone when she got back. She was right. There was a call from a number that Sally knew. It belonged to a woman Richard had met through a website called Dinner Dates. She asked Richard to explain the call. He told her, don't question me. Sally made breakfast. And while Richard was sitting at the table eating bacon and eggs, she took a hammer and hit him repeatedly, more than 20 times. Just to make sure, in case he was still breathing, she stuffed a tea towel into his mouth before wrapping him in some old curtains. She wrote a note that said, I love you, Sally, and placed it on Richard's body. Then she washed the dishes and drove back to the home she shared with their son, David. The next morning, she gave David, then 23, a ride to work. After that, she drove to Beachy Head. She called her cousin to confess. Then she walked to the cliffs. It took a suicide prevention team hours to talk her back from the ledge. When I first read about this case, I thought, wow, a hammer. How many women bludgeon their husbands to death? Not many. Certainly not as many as do shoot their husbands or poison them. Was this just about being jealous? About being betrayed? Not just. This was about a lot more, as it turns out. And just about everyone supported Sally after the murder. They were not calling for justice for Richard. In June of 2011, Sally was in court. She did not look well. She had lost a front tooth. Her hair was not the usual, impeccably groomed blonde style. And she was quiet, very quiet, barely speaking. The prosecution made claims she was a possessive, jealous wife. They painted a picture in where the call from the other woman made Sally snap. 
However, they said, the other woman was just a friend. It was platonic. They told how Sally had counted Richard's Viagra and checked his emails, hacked into his messages. When they asked why she killed him, she said, I don't know. I just didn't think he wanted to be with me. The trial was seven days, and at the end of it, she was found guilty. The judge sentenced her to life. He told her she had been eaten up with jealousy at Richard's friendships with other women. You are somebody who killed the only man you loved, he said, and you will have to live with knowing what you did. There was so much more to Sally's story and so much more to where her mental state was. It would be six years before all of it would be heard, though. In 2015, coercive control was added to the statute books under the Serious Crime Act. In March of 2017, Sally won leave to appeal against her conviction on the ground she'd suffered coercive and controlling behavior from her husband, something that did not become a criminal defense until four years after her trial. Her lawyer, Harriet Wistrich, was the co-founder for Justice for Women, which helped with the release of some famous UK cases of women who had killed their violent and abusive husbands. Coercive control identified something that victims of domestic violence had been trying to explain for decades, if not longer. The physical assaults were not the worst. There was the pattern of humiliation, domination, and isolation that had broken them down. It stole from them the person who they were before, often a slow, methodical chipping away of their being, until they no longer knew who they were. Sally did not have hospital visits or broken bones to use, no history of physical violence. What they did have was numerous witness statements taken in 2010, but not used in court, emails from Richard to Sally, and months of time spent with Sally herself. Wistrich hoped to show that for 30 years, Richard's behavior pushed his wife to the edge. Here is a woman who absolutely adored her husband, a very old-fashioned housewife who had never committed an act of violence or criminal offense, her lawyer Wistrich said. From the outside, it's such a bizarre thing to happen. It's only when you look at their whole marriage and understand coercive control that the picture starts making sense. Sally's sons have always been behind her. Sally Jenny met Richard Challen when she was just 15 and he was 22. Her son David said about this, That's important to know, to understand what happened later. He went on to say that he got a real sense growing up that Dad was Mom's childhood sweetheart, that romance went on all her life. It seemed very pure. He said that now he can see the age gap for what it meant. His mother never had a chance to experience any other relationship or form any adult identity of her own. My dad and the way he behaved was all she knew. Sally's father was a brigadier in the Royal Engineers who spent most of his life in India. Sally had four brothers who were all teenagers when she was born. Her father died when she was just six years old. She was not encouraged to go for higher learning, her mother thought secretarial work, maybe, and a husband and children should be Sally's goals. Richard Challen's father was correspondent for the News of the World. Richard was into cars growing up, and as he got older, he was passionate about fast cars. He was funny with the way of talking to people that made him a natural salesperson. He started making good money selling cars. 
Richard's friend set him up with Sally. In those early years, Sally would go by Richard's flat after school and clean and cook for him. Richard was on and off with Sally. He always had other women going as well. Two things in those early years are important to note. One is that Sally became pregnant at 17. Her brother took her for an abortion. Richard had stated to her and to them that it could have been anybody's. However, Sally only ever was with Richard, and he was the only man she had ever even thought of. Second thing that happened is something we would call nowadays a red flag incident. Sally had stood up to Richard one day about him seeing other women. He physically dragged her down the stairs and threw her out the front door. Somehow, they still got married. Richard's old school friend, Dellen Blackmore, was his best man at the wedding. He had a feeling that Sally's family was not very happy about her marrying Richard. Richard had made her sign a prenup to protect his money. Everyone always joked about how tight Richard was. But Sally loved him, and everyone could see she was deeply attached. As time went on, most people on the outside saw the challenge marriage as successful. Richard owned his own car dealership by this time. They soon had two sons and bought the grand home at one Ruxley Ridge. By all accounts, including her children's, Sally was a wonderful mother. Richard's sons said he was a normal father. The family went on some nice holiday trips, such as trips to Disneyland in Florida. The boys said they considered their first 10 years to be relatively normal. People in their small community saw it differently. The families in Claygate socialized together and had dinner parties. There was gossip. One neighbor, whose children were the same ages as the Challen kids, got to know them well. He said Richard was a man's man. He had the expensive cars, designer clothes, watches, and more. He also said Richard made disparaging remarks about Sally's appearance, which embarrassed everyone, especially when he tried to get them to agree with him. He would say things like, my God, she has a big arse, and laugh, and try to get people to say he was right. Richard also did have some trouble with the law. In 1991, his motorcycle was in a police chase when they tried to stop him for speeding. The chase included helicopters. In court, he got off because the police could not prove he was the one riding the bike. Then, in 2006, he crashed his Ferrari on a racetrack in Belgium, then shipped it home and claimed on his insurance that he was hit by a truck in the city where he lived. This time in court, he was found guilty of fraud and received a 51-week suspended sentence. There were other icky-type incidents where, for two years in a row, Richard sent out Christmas cards with a picture of him with nude and topless women straddling him. This was a man with a wife and children, and those were the cards he sent. Just him and nude women. For Christmas. Many of the neighbors, if not most, did not like him. One neighbor had said Richard was sleazy. If someone was having a dinner party and people knew that Richard and Sally would be there, you would not get a good attendance. Richard was avoided socially whenever possible. And in some ways, this isolated Sally socially as well. As they got older, Sally's sons started to notice things. Their mom did everything. She did everything at home, and she did all of Richard's business administration. 
When her youngest son, David, was 13, she got an office job with the police federation. After that, all the household expenses came out of her income. Their sons were aware of all this. Richard was getting a Ferrari, a Cartier watch, and went to Grand Prix events. He was pretty much off doing his own thing. For example, one time in the middle of summer, Richard asked his son David why he wasn't in school. His own dad wasn't aware that he was on summer break from school. Both kids said Sally was loving, kind, and calm, and accepting mom. They said she always listened to them. Later, when one of her sons realized he was gay, it was Sally that he went to. There was sort of an unspoken agreement not to talk to their dad about it, to not even mention it to Richard. Sadly, both kids remember their dad putting their mom down quite often. Thunder thighs was a common insult. That he thought she had a giant ass was another. Sally very often got compliments on how she looked by other people. The boys said their father would usually respond with something like, Well, you haven't seen her without her clothes on. Things around the house were always good and easygoing when it was just the boys and their mom. When their father got home, things were different. They felt on edge. There were arguments over what Sally had chose to make for dinner, or Richard would complain if he didn't like how she made something. When Richard was watching TV and someone was talking, he would turn the volume up to drown them out. Richard was also seeing other women. He had several mobile phones that he used. After his death, even more were found in the spare tire of his car. When Sally would find out about other women, Richard would deny it and tell her she was crazy, which is a pretty common theme. When pressed, he became angry as he didn't feel he needed to answer any questions that he did not want to. Sally's friends say Sally almost always talked about Richard. She just wanted to make him happy and feel loved by him. Sally did see her doctor for trouble sleeping and what was called domestic stress. Because so many people avoided Richard, Sally did not have a lot of friends. Richard did not want her to see friends alone. There were only a few that he approved of, and that was because he was friends with the women's husbands first before Sally had met them. One curious incident happened in the late 1990s. One of Richard's oldest friends had moved to Los Angeles. He had married, and the two couples would get together several times a year. This one evening, everyone had gone up to bed. It was just Sally and Richard's friend downstairs. They stood up to go to bed as well, and the friend gave Sally a hug and kissed goodnight. This was not unusual. He hugged Sally every time he saw her. Richard came in at that moment and asked what was going on. The friend said, are you kidding? Neither the friend nor Sally could believe he was serious. It was ridiculous to them. After that holiday, Richard never talked to the friend again. He would not write back or answer his calls. Sally told another friend that that night Richard took her upstairs and raped her. The thing that is most often reported to be the breaking point for Sally, the thing that made her actually take steps to leave and get her own place, was when a massage parlor, really a brothel, was raided. It was covered by local news reports, and it was staffed by women who were being trafficked. It was a brothel, and these women were victims of human trafficking. There had been times when Sally had followed Richard, and this was one of the places that she had seen him go into. Soon after this, she bought the small home with her inheritance money, and she and David 
her youngest son, moved there. Her oldest son, James, was 25 at the time and had already moved out with his girlfriend. It was November 2009 when Sally managed to break away. Still, she struggled without Richard. She missed him and had a hard time knowing what to do without him. He had been her whole life. Her closest friend said she was always on the phone to her talking about Richard. She kept telling her that she was doing the right thing and she needed to give it time. But Sally was unable to do this. And what ended up happening was she started to talk to Richard about getting back together. He was willing to consider it, but it would be his way. One email he wrote back to her said, I will consider your return on these terms. You will continue and complete the divorce only with a 200,000 pound settlement. She would have been entitled to much more after a 31 year marriage. That when we go out together, it means together. This constant talking to strangers is rude and inconsiderate. We will agree to items in the home together, to give up smoking, to give up your constant interruptions when I am speaking. Those were his terms. Sally was desperate to reconcile. They began to see each other, and Richard was the one to suggest the long trip to Australia. Sally did worry that this was possibly a ploy by Richard to get her to the divorce terms so he could walk away after the divorce with most of their money. Her divorce lawyer said she stopped and started the divorce process 13 times. David said that his mom's behavior was odd for the month before his dad was killed. He said she was distracted, unfocused, she wouldn't listen. After years of being pushed around and played with, it was as if the ball was rolling. When I found out what she'd done, I didn't even think to ask why. In Sally's 2011 trial, Richard's behavior was barely mentioned. The defense seemed to feel that attacking the murder victim's character might look bad. At the time of the appeal, Sally was 64 and seven years into her sentence. By all accounts, Sally still missed and loved Richard. This maybe shows just how strong a hold he had on her. By all reports, no one had anything positive to say about Richard. No neighbors, family members, or friends. Plenty spoke in Sally's defense, but not so with Richard. The appeal was successful, and she was released, and a further hearing is scheduled for June 7th, and a retrial in July of this year, if necessary. Sally has served nine years now and is home with her family. Speaking outside the court, David Challen said, Today we are overjoyed that bail has been granted for our mother and she will now be released back to us. Our mother now rejoins our family. Asked what it will be like when she walks out of prison on Saturday, he said. It's a massive moment, he added. It's a happy day for us. We get to see her again. Okay, so I found a really great article in The Guardian written by Julie Bindle, uh, and I recommend reading the whole article, but I will just give you a little bit of a breakdown on it, and it does, in fact, mention Sally and her case as well. The main question of the article is, why are so many women charged with murder as opposed to manslaughter if there is strong evidence of domestic violence? give you a quick breakdown on the cases that they mentioned. Emma Humphreys was just 17 years old when she was convicted of murdering her pimp boyfriend, Trevor Armitage. This was in 1985.
Humphrey's childhood was awful. It was filled with violence and abuse. Her stepfather was extremely violent, and she had witnessed regular abuse. At age 12, she started to run away. Soon, she was victimized by men who turned her into prostitution. It started with just a bed for the night in exchange for sex. At 16, Humphreys met Armitage, a local punter, and moved in with him. Armitage immediately became violent and controlling. Humphreys was regularly raped and beaten by her clients. Her life was just a pure hell. At trial, Humphrey was advised not to give any evidence. Unsurprisingly, she was convicted and sentenced to life. Little, if anything, was said in the court about the violence and abuse she had endured from Armitage as well as other men. There was no sympathy or understanding as to why this child, with no history of violent offenses, had been driven to kill. She was just 17 years old. She had been in prison for seven years when she heard about justice for women. They launched a campaign to get her an appeal. Three years later, Humphreys won her appeal and walked out of the court. She was surrounded by supporters cheering. Her case made headlines around the world and even resulted in a change to the law. Judges were now able to direct juries in such cases to take into consideration the whole life histories of women like Humphreys. Many campaigners felt this was a great turning point and would help other women in a position similar to Humphreys. They would be more freely treated by the courts and hopefully better understood. They were wrong. In 2015, Farissa Martin, 22, was convicted of the murder of Kyle Farrell in 2015 and sentenced to 13 years in prison. Martin, who at the time had two small children with Farrell, grabbed a knife when he tried to strangle her. Farrell's violence often left Martin in fear for her life, but she was too frightened to call the police in case social services became involved and removed her children. Farrell's history of violence was not adequately explored during the trial. Justice for Women is campaigning for the case to go to appeal on the grounds that the evidence of domestic violence was not afforded enough significance during the trial. And then they mention the case of Sally Challen. They say another case is that of Sally Challen, who killed her husband, Richard, after decades of domestic abuse. Sally met Richard when she was 15 and he was 22. Sally was abused and controlled by Richard from the beginning of their relationship. And then they go into how the course of control um, is affected. Sally now has a legal team. This was in the article. And her appeal against the murder conviction will be heard later this year on grounds that she was subjected to coercive control for decades. She was given a sentence of 22 years in 2011. The prosecution suggested that her motive was jealousy. Richard had a number of affairs and also was known to have visited brothels on a regular basis. One neighbor said it was well known that he had an eye for the ladies. This is somewhat different to the way that many men who kill their female partners are treated. Infidelity is regularly used as a defense in such cases, often successfully by men who kill and yet women, such as Humphrey, are given no understanding or sympathy for their experience of horrendous domestic violence and sexual violence. In 2017, new grounds were submitted to the Court of Appeal claiming that at the time of killing, the time of the killing, Sally Challen was subjected to coercive control 
a form of abuse prevalent in domestic violence relationships that has only recently been made a criminal offense. In 2016, Emma Jane Magson stabbed her partner, James Knight, after he had attacked and attempted to strangle her. There was a known history of domestic violence perpetrated by Knight towards Magson. On the night he died, Knight was captured on CCTV pushing Magson into the road. She had grown up witnessing horrific domestic violence, which led to mental health problems in later life. During the murder trial, no mention of this history was made. Why are so many women charged with murder, as opposed to manslaughter, if there is strong evidence of domestic violence? How different is the attitude to men defending property than to women defending their own lives or the lives of their children against violent men? The victims of domestic violence who live in well-founded fear of their lives have the right to a fair trial. David and James, Sally's sons, campaigned hard for her release. David posted a picture of the three of them when she was reunited with her boys outside of jail. She had served nine years at this point, and while always a very attractive woman, you can see that she has been through a lot. Her boys are very nice looking like their mom and look very happy to have her back. It was reported that her conviction was quashed by the Court of Appeal in February following a campaign by her two sons. This is quoted. She admitted killing her husband in August 2010, but denied murder. Mr. Justice Edis set a further hearing for June 7th and a trial date for July 1st, if necessary. Outside the Royal Courts of Justice, after the conviction was quashed, David spoke to the press. The abuse our mother suffered we felt, was never recognized properly, and her mental conditions were not taken into account. 